0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 39 and 40. With Terry Wickett gone, and continually burdened by the games of making nice people accept him, Martin does the worst work of his life. He thinks he has found a respite from the nonsense when Cliff Clausen pays him a visit. He emerges from his office to find a sweaty, puffy, pale-faced Cliff creepily hitting on the reception clerk. When Cliff suggests Martin doesn't have time for his old friends, now that he's a great man and a renowned skiantist, Martin struggles to reassure him. Groping to find common ground with his developmentally stunted old friend, he offers to tell him about his work on phage. Cliff interrupts him to suggest together they, quote, "'rig up a new kind of cure,' call it phagotherapy, unquote, and claw in the bounteous dollars. Martin replies feebly that he's against it. Cliff is resentful, but accepting, and suggests that the least Martin could do is to invite him to dinner at the house in return for the times Cliff slipped him some feed and a place to sleep. Martin agrees. Sitting alone in his office, Martin realizes he had always pictured Cliff as another Terry wicket. But while they are alike in their acerbity, they couldn't be more fundamentally different, since Wickett's abrasiveness,, quote, "made up the haircloth robe wherewith he defended a devotion to such holy work as no cowled monk ever knew." Unquote. Torn between the remembrance of Cliff's loyalty and his present conviction that he'd do the world a service by killing him, he ultimately calls up Joyce to arrange a dinner, just the three of them, and to warn her about him. Joyce is initially offended at the suggestion that she is a snob, but then, when Cliff calls to ask, among other things, whether he needs to put on the soup and fish for dinner— She hangs up and declares she can't do it. Martin talks her into it, and after a wretched evening listening to Cliff speak in his vulgar slanguage, love that word, boast of his own crookedness and malign Martin's great god Gottlieb, Joyce excuses herself to bed. When Cliff then proceeds to insult her behind her back, Martin breaks and kicks him out. Alone, Martin tells himself that Cliff is a crook, a fool, and a waster, while still suffering the loss of a friend he loved. When he goes to bed, and Joyce declares how dreadful the evening was, Martin becomes characteristically defensive, taking up Cliff's part. Then he begins to reflect on the fact that Leora would not have sat as judge, but would merely have found Cliff interesting and he wonders if his own judgment of Cliff comes under Joyce's spell. In any case, he never sees Cliff again. John Arrowsmith is born, and Joyce's suffering in childbirth renews all of Martin's love for her. Joyce worships the child, and Martin fears him, because he imagines this miniature aristocrat will one day condescend to him. Three months later. Joyce is back to putting and backhand service and hats and Russian émigrés. One day, Martin makes a discovery, and he recovers the thrill of research and the yearning to work nights. Joyce resents how drawn and trembly his obsessive work has made him. So, a week later, she says she has a surprise for him. Over their garage, she has created for him the best bacteriological laboratory Martin has ever seen, with the most immaculate and elaborate scientific supplies, including none other than Gladys the Centrifuge. Martin is awed by her humble kindness, and dismayed that now he can never get away by himself. Martin's lab becomes the new diversion in Joyce's exhausted social world. They flock to see it, then drive away saying things like, didn't he look silly out in his idiotic laboratory, and wonder what on earth Joyce ever saw in him. Joyce becomes inexplicably busy with her activities as an arranger. When Martin attempts to escape entanglements, she calls him a weak, irresolute little man who can only run away, unlike the big men who can stop and play. Yet. The two of them develop a binding pride watching their son grow. Martin escapes to spend a week with Terry Wickett at Bertie's Rest. Regaling him with the details of his research, Terry stops to say there's no point in telling him. If he was interested, he would have chosen Terry over Joyce. Martin slams out of the cabin, blundering through the darkness and the snow. Then he flounders back to the cabin crying that they've got to stick together, and that somehow he will come and work with him. Meanwhile, Holabird invites Martin and Joyce to dinner to share his plan to help Tubbs and the League of Cultural Agencies in their mission to classify the aims, ideals, and moral purposes of all intellectual occupations, and to make them as practical and supreme as the manufacture of cash registers. As if bestowing him with royal favor, Holabird says he would like to make Martin his assistant director at McGurk, with the understanding that Martin would succeed him as full director. On the car ride home, Joyce declares the opportunity too wonderful, saying it will give Martin prominence, respect, and the power to accomplish good. When Martin mourns the prospect of giving up his work in exchange for dictating letters, buying linoleum, and having lunches, Joyce berates him for being stubborn and superior. He realizes that she never has understood what he does. After only a brief moment of indecision, thinking he might finally be able to contribute to the bills, Martin leaps to final judgment. He won't do it. Over the course of the ensuing argument with Joyce, he moves quickly from considering the idea of running away to work with Terry, to a firm declaration that he is leaving her. Then Martin dives into work with Terry, worrying over his desertion of Joyce and John no more than he did his desertion of Cliff. Finally comprehending his freedom, Martin begins to hurl out hypotheses like sparks— and his work begins to draw ahead of Terry's. He becomes stronger and surer, and sees ahead of him enough adventures to keep him busy for decades. One day, Joyce appears at the cabin. She says that she has missed him, that she understands his need to work, and that she can just build a little house across the lake. Martin insists it won't work, and when she asks if their son is to live without his care, he replies coldly, that he'd live without it if Martin had died, and makes a vague suggestion that maybe someday he could come to live there. She asks Martin if maybe he is a little insane, and he says, Oh, absolutely, and how I enjoy it. And then later corrects himself, saying, I don't believe we're insane. We're farmers. Joyce declares herself the one with common sense and a belief in bathing, and she says goodbye. As she drives away, the two of them share a tearful look of recollection over every tenderness they had shared. And then the novel comes to a close, with a where-are-they-now account of the cast of characters that had made up Martin's life. Pickerbaugh dining with the president, Holabird addressing the League of Cultural Agencies, Dewar head of the Roundsfield Clinic, Bert Tozer conducting a midweek prayer meeting, Max Gottlieb, alone and unmoving, only his eyes alive. Sandalius, lost among the cinders, and Leora, buried in the earth of St. Hubert. And Joyce, declaring to Latham Ireland that she just might marry him. And Martin and Terry, lolling in a clumsy boat, contemplating the scientific adventures ahead, and saying, "'Maybe we'll get something permanent.' And probably we'll fail. The next of my posts was called, Was Joyce Redeemed? I'd like to be more diplomatic about this, but I say, good God, no. The same pattern continues. Sinclair Lewis bombards us with unnerving examples of Joyce's pettiness, hostility, and pretentiousness, while trying to balance them with abstract insistence, Martin loved her nevertheless. The reader is given every reason to dislike her, and then confronted with bland assertions that she's likable. Three months after giving birth, Joyce is consumed again by idle pursuits—tennis, golf, hats, and entertaining exotic guests. In the midst of Martin's raptures about his work, she looks at him with blandly kind eyes and interrupts him with formal courtesy to ask the butler for more sherry. Her generous gift of a home lab seems more like an attempt to keep him as a pet, particularly when she brings her friends around to gawk at him. She drags Martin into all her projects as an arranger, and when he tries to get out of them, calls him a weak, irresolute little man, afraid of the big men who can do big work and still stop and play. She tries to bully him into accepting the directorship, resorting even to making him feel guilty for having been dependent on her. There's more, but I think that's enough to establish that she is unlikable. And yet, Joyce's suffering over the birth of their son, Lewis says, renewed all of Martin's love for her. He did love pitifully this slim, brilliant girl. I would have taken this love as merely a momentary enraptured gratitude. But the parenthetical remark that he did love this brilliant girl suggests it is more than that. And brilliant? What on earth have we been told that would justify the description of brilliant? And when she drives away from Bertie's rest, they gaze at each other through tears, remembering every tenderness. The problem is, I don't remember any. My best guess is that when Sinclair Lewis decided it was time for this novel to lumber to a close, he needed the drama of something or someone Martin would leave behind. But, for me anyway, there wasn't damn much drama in it, because my feeling was that he should have left her behind way back in St. Hubert. The next of my posts was called Not With a Bang, but a whimper. My feeling was that the novel didn't really end. It just sort of petered out. Throughout the novel, we've been wondering whether Martin will ever learn to be true to his own soul, as we watch him learn one painful lesson after another. And then, all Martin's mortal struggles between science and success, between a religious devotion to truth and the pull of material reward— between his fleeting bouts of confidence and his waves of self-doubt, seem to come to an end in a single, capricious moment. Let's look at that moment closely. Martin is offered the directorship, and Joyce urges him to accept. He makes feeble objections, and then, after her parting shot about his dependence, wonders if maybe she's right, and then decides, by some inexplicable means, but she isn't. He goes to her room to tell her so, and the two engage in an argument in which he says, almost like a childish dare, what I ought to do is go to Bertie's rest right now and work with Terry. She mocks him for feeling so virtuous about wanting to go off and wear a flannel shirt and be peculiar and very, very pure. And then he, in some unexplained flash of inspiration, says, Oh, this debate could go on forever. We could prove that I'm a hero, or a fool, or a deserter, or anything you like, but the fact is, I've suddenly seen I must go. I want my freedom to work, and I herewith quit whining about it and grab it. You've been generous to me. I'm grateful. But you've never been mine. Goodbye. Unquote. And this time, for reasons never given, it's for keeps. I almost feel like Sinclair Lewis was thinking to himself that this book could go on forever, and then he suddenly realized that he must go. I've complained before that this book lacks a plot structure. Lewis has not wrought this situation into a climax with a satisfactory and convincing resolution. It's more like he said with a shrug, I have to end it sometime. How about now? And so, Martin's happy ending... His embrace of the life of pure research in defiance of practical success is something of an anticlimax. A side note on the ending I imagine Lewis took great delight in having the happy ending of his novel about success as the enemy of science with the words, probably we'll fail. I think I've said pretty much all I have to say about this novel. So I think I'll give the final word to E.L. Doctorow from an afterword to Aerosmith. Doctorow says, As the first major American novel to concern itself with the culture of science, Aerosmith seemed a considerable departure for Lewis, a work more substantial than Babbitt. Yet Martin Aerosmith's struggle to be a scientist is a matter of freeing himself from a universe of Babbitt's. And though science provides him with his calling, it is at the story's end conflated with living in the wilderness, a vision more of a classic pastoralism than a scientific future. Lewis's satiric impulse, reflected in his habits of style, prevails sometimes at the expense of the credibility of the work. Characters speak in riffs of self-damning monologue, the author's most relished device. Even Leora, who is thought to be a triumph of characterization, and is in fact quite vulnerable to a feminist critique, speaks in overly self-indicating paragraphs. Both characters and settings are delivered in hasty catalogues, and events seem to be sketched on the pages. The overall feel of this Bildungsroman, coming-of-age story, is of a running montage, to which even detailed scenes seem subsumed, so that the author's driving intentions are never absent from view. But withal, Sinclair Lewis, a genius of unappeasable anger and mirthless derision, wanted urgently to shine his light upon us. Who can say it is not illuminating? And who can say of life in America today that the Aerosmiths aren't few and the Babbitts aren't many? Lewis's fierce moral nature was the source of his greatness. And that is what we close the book on, as we do with any prophet who tells us what we don't want to hear. I love that. Thank you to everyone who has participated in discussing this novel with me. It's been very satisfying for me, and I hope it has for many of you. And I really look forward to our next book together.